okay, I survived. I didn't die. Um, yes, it was horrible. And I'm not taking anything away from any type of traumatic experience, but it was horrible, but I'm alive. Why am I still alive? And, and you know, make something of the reason you're still alive. So, you know, the legacy of, of family. Um, yes, uh, those, those friends of mine died. But if I had died, then my, my two children, potentially three or, or more down the road, they would not be here. Dory one, this is Fireteam Delta. Dad's coming home. Welcome to the Military Veteran Dad Podcast, where it is our mission to bring every dad home. I am your host, Ben Colloy. I'm a United States Marine veteran, husband, and a father. We will bring authentic conversations to inspire action in your life so we can close the gap between the dad you are today and the dad you want to be tomorrow. This is the Military Veteran Dad Podcast. Welcome back to episode 46. I'm your host, Ben Cloy. And before we get started, I just want to honor you, the listener, because I know that there are over 700,000 podcasts in the English language. And you have chosen to listen to this one, the Military Veteran Dad. So for that, I thank you. And I thank you for being a continued follower. If you this is your first time listening to this episode, be sure to subscribe to it in your favorite podcast player. We're on Apple. We're on iHeartRadio. We're on Alexa. You can tell Alexa to play the Military Veteran Dad. Wherever you listen to your podcast, be sure to subscribe. And if you got a piece of value out of this, I would really appreciate two things. One, be sure to tell a friend. That's how this podcast and this movement to bring every dad home will grow and evolve and truly begin to start in the masses bringing more military veteran dads home. And second, if you haven't left a review on iTunes, those are worth their weight in gold and they help us reach more military veteran dads. So if you haven't done that, I would really appreciate that. Today's episode is with a Navy SEAL, John Macaskill. This episode is raw and uncut. We go into the areas that you don't think a Navy SEAL would go to. We go there. We talk about something that I've never really had this phrase on the podcast before, but we talk about something called an empathy bridge. An empathy bridge being the conversations that you build when you come back from deployment with your spouse and how that rebuilds back the connection between your marriage and reignites the intimacy and that feeling of why you chose each other in the first place. And that empathy bridge can be that one way to build those and connect back together. We also talk about something about what we talk about and called on the podcast was two commitments that your two commitments in life is your wife who almost goes to the end of your life. That that's the idea when you choose those, everything else in your life is finite. It has an end date, but your spouse is there till the end. And second, your other commitment is to your kids. You are a dad till the day you die. Those two commitments never go away. So whatever else you bring into your life, focus on those two commitments because those are the ones that go all the way to the end of your life. And the other one that we talk about is running from an emotion. Is there something that you need to feel? Or maybe you're not even aware you need to feel it, but is there something deep inside that you're taking actions based on some subconscious story that you're telling yourself? And what emotion is that? And what are you not dealing with? that's causing you to run from something. So this episode, it's got a lot of good stuff. And this Navy SEAL, John Maxkill, really opens it up. We don't go into any, really anything about Navy SEALs because he's still on active duty, but we open up what his life is like, what his first marriage was like, what his second marriage is like, 
and what it truly means for him to be a dad now in his second marriage and how he intentionally comes home in each episode or within each time he comes home from a deployment. So with that said, let's get this started with John Magaskill. Welcome to the show, John. Hey, thanks, Ben. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I know our, our friendship is just getting started, but can you, for our listeners, go ahead and explain a little bit what your family looks like right now? Sure. So my family is myself uh, and then my wife, Becca. My wife is a former active duty Navy orthopedic physician assistant. Uh, she got out a little over a year ago. And then we've got two kiddos together. Got a little two and a half year old girl, Mia, and an eight month old little boy, Taylor. And then we're hoping to, to add a third to our family. Um, got a late start. Uh, I'm on my second marriage. I'm 42 years old. So, you know, I'll be 60 something by the, the time I third, if we in fact get, get blessed with a third added to the family by the time that third graduates high school. So I'm sure that I'll be mistaken for that one's granddad, but I've, uh, I've definitely enjoyed the, the couple of years that we've had with little kids and uh, definitely wish I'd gotten started earlier. So yeah, it's a, it's a blessing to, to be with the, the little ones and a blessing to be on the show, man. I appreciate it. And it's an awesome honor to have you on as our second Navy SEAL. And I can only imagine that being a Navy SEAL is not going to age you any faster so that when you're 60, you're not going to look like you're 70. Like I'm sure the <laughs> Navy SEALs doesn't do anything to your physique that makes it make you look older than you really are. Well, it, it may not do much to your physique, but it does a lot to your bone structure. They, uh, they say that it's not the age, it's the mileage. So we've, uh, we've got a lot of miles on these chassis of ours and uh, a lot of us are more broken than, than some others who are, are our same age. <laughs> Funny. Yeah. No. The back is the first thing that I remember in the Marine Corps they abuse. Absolutely. Absolutely. Back and knees. Back and knees. Yeah. I haven't had it, too many back problems, but I can only, I've only heard stories of people and uh, it's good stuff. Well, let's dive into a little bit about your, your, your marriage. So, um, one of the first questions we always like to ask dags on the podcast is what does it mean for you to come home? And you can answer it from what it meant in your first marriage that you said in, in our pre-interview that maybe coming home was part of the struggle and sure. what your, your mentality is now in your marriage and with two kids to coming home. Yeah, absolutely. So great question, man. So coming home, that is definitely something I did not do well in my first marriage, both in coming home from deployment and, and quite honestly, coming home every day, coming home every day um, in my first marriage was, okay, this is something I have to do. I love my job. I'm going to stay at my job until I absolutely have to leave. Um, coming home from deployment, I had several rough deployments, uh, lost some great friends um, and, and coming home, my mind was on, um, for lack of a better term, getting back out there, getting back out there and serving again, um, kind of in, in a, I almost wanted to go and get revenge against some of our enemy. And I couldn't really focus on what, uh, what I was living in the moment back here stateside. So I really struggled with that, that coming home in my first marriage and, that along with some other things and the op tempo that we, that we had going on, um, that 
that ended my first marriage. My second marriage, and going back to my first marriage, we had no kids together. So that was a, a blessing. But um, my second marriage now with, with Becca and our little ones together, coming home, luckily, I, I will be honest, we have not experienced a, a combat deployment together. I did experience a, a year where I was PCS overseas to Bahrain. And coming home from that, um, you know, I, I tried to come home every few months to, to spend some time with Becca just before we had kids. Um, and I would try when I was home really to focus on the, the family, focus on what she was going through, focus on what she was experiencing. Um, and now, now that we've gotten the little ones added to our family, um, what, what I think of as coming home, like on the everyday kind of way of coming home, I kind of, um, I listened to a, a meditation, I don't know, got a meditation maybe six months ago or so. And it mentions kind of a, an analogy or a visioning of standing out front of your house and you've got your sea bags, you've got two sea bags, one in each hand. One sea bag is your past, your, your work past, and the other sea bag is kind of your work future. And you, you know, metaphorically drop these sea bags on the road and then you walk into your yard and walk across your front porch and walk into your house. So basically you're dropping the workload until you have to go back the next day. And to me, that's what coming home is, is, is really dropping work before you even come into the front yard, um, metaphorically. Um, and I say that I'm certainly no, not perfect at it. I, I still, and, and it's gotten even more difficult as I've, started to come into a transition period trying to figure out who I am as John McCaskill and, and not as commander McCaskill or, or the Navy side of me, um, you know, what that future is going to look like. So I've had to spend time because I'm still active duty. Uh, I've had to spend time at home kind of reinventing myself, but I still try to as much as possible make myself present for my, my, my wife first and for my kids. Uh, I have had uh, several wake up calls. <laughs> I mean, my two and a half year old little girl has come up to me while I was sitting on my recliner and she said, you know, daddy, put your phone down. And those are the moments are like, wow, John, you know, get your stuff straight. Um, really focus on the family, put your phone down. I mean, my two and a half year old is the one who's telling me to do that. That's, that's when it's uh, definitely a wake up call, but yeah, what I try to do these days for, for coming home, quote unquote, uh, is, is really kind of change the mind shift or mindset shifted to focusing on the family. And then everything that I do for work, I try to do from when I wake up in the morning until when I, get back in the afternoon or, or early evening. So that's, um, I, I have been blessed. Like I said, I have not been deployed with, with kids. Um, and I have, now that I am, you know, 42 years old and I've got a two and a half year old little girl and an eight month old little boy. Um, 
I cannot imagine deploying with these little ones. And I have such a newfound respect for the families on both the service member and the person who stays at home um, with little ones while that service member is deployed. And, and again, also for the service member, I just cannot imagine how that feels and what coming home after going on a combat deployment, coming home to a family with kids, what that looks like. Um, so newfound respect, um, utmost respect for, for those families. And I have to say, Ben, before we go forward, thank you to all those families. Thank you to the spouses that stay home and take care of the families. And thank you to the kids, you know, that are putting their, either their mothers or their fathers out there to serve this great country and, and knowing that there's a sacrifice in time of your life, potentially, literally sacrificing your life as a, as a service member, sacrificing your father or your mother's time, sacrificing your, your mother or your father's life to, to keep our country safe and free. So that uh, was probably a lot longer than the response you had anticipated. But yeah, that's kind of what coming home means to me, Ben. It was all good. And I can imagine I'd only add for the kids, it's, it's often they're writing checks or you're writing or you're collecting a check from them that they don't actually realize the, the price that they're writing it for. Maybe as they're older, they understand it. But when they're young, it's not something that they understand until they're well older of what, what it was really like or what the emotions that they really were feeling while daddy was gone. And the part that I've on the podcast I've learned the most is when you've come home that there's a honeymoon phase that you see on, on news videos where there's those massive coming homes and you get those great big hugs and that honeymoon phase always ends. And then there's this reintegration process that can almost be like a stalemate, almost waiting for someone to go first. And sure. the, uh, that's really where the real work of coming home is because you have to reconnect with your wife, reconnect with your kids, pretend or get into a system that actually was designed and was working without you that they right. created a life that, that didn't involve you needing there. They wanted you there, but they had to create processes that didn't need you there. And like that need is that routine. That need can be almost killing for, for military members because we need that purpose. And they created a, a year without you forever, however long it was. And right. that reintegration process is extremely hard. And when you do go through it, the best advice that I've received so far, and it is find ways to figure out what was life like when you weren't there. Ask your wife questions, just get her talking, get your kids talking, get them telling you about stories, what they went through, because then you can build some type of empathy bridge almost, and then allow yourself to re-emotionally connect with them. And then you can, when you have that emotional bond of what they went through that you weren't able to help them through, you can almost like move forward together. It's not like who's going to go first. It's like, okay, I've now come back through the past with you and now we can go forward again together. Right. Right. I love that term, the empathy bridge. That's uh, that's spot on, man. That's a new one. I never used that one before. Uh, <laughs> that's great, man. Well done. Um, yeah. So like I said, I, I haven't had to come home with kids, but even coming home with just between my previous wife and my wife now, yeah, that, that reintegration and kind of plugging yourself back into a routine that exists without you, without interfering, um, but still wanting to contribute 
So it's really tough on both sides, you know, as the service member and as the person who's been back holding down the fort. And now, now you've gotten this, um, I don't want to use the word stranger, but I'm going to, you've got kind of got a stranger that has gone out and seen things, done things, and is now back in your life trying to inject themselves into your routine. It's, it's really tough on both sides. So mm-hmm. yeah, uh, man, yeah. Coming home is tough on both sides for sure. And I like what your daughter said there about uh, get, daddy, get off your phone because it's amazing. It's, it's, it's frustrating because it's true, but then it's also a wonder when you look at it, kids are amazing mirrors for where we as dads suck. <laughs> yes. They will find your weakness and just poke it and just keep poking it. And generally the way that I, I view when my kids, I get upset with my kids is when I'm upset, that usually says more about me than it does about them. Because generally they're just reflecting back a weakness they figured out with daddy. And it's up to me to work through that weakness, not necessarily to figure out how they figured it out because they're just kids (laughs) and they're very clever. But to use those as kind of indicators to where that personal growth inside can need some work. Right, right. Oh, absolutely, man. Uh, And yeah, my little girl is not just an exact mirror of what what I am uh, living, but also I think she... Kind of reflects my my future. I I wish she I wish she could speak in more complete sentences because she is wise beyond her years. <laughs> I, I'll talk. My daughter, my oldest is seven, and we were on the way to my parents who live on a farm. And uh, I remember oh, D- Dylan wanted to go, which was my son who's five. He was talking about going to a dinosaur museum, and he loves dinosaurs, so it goes right along with it. And then my daughter who's in the car is like, Dylan, that's dumb. Why would you want to go look at a bunch of dead things? So then she goes off on this tangent and she's like, we need to go to an art museum because that way you can see all this inspiration and see all these different ways to view art. And that way you can inspire me to to do better. And she's seven. I was like, who talks about going to a museum when you're seven to be inspired to do better art? (laughs) Like it only gets worse. So if you're at two and a half, I can only, (laughs) when when she's my daughter's age at seven, I can only imagine what you're going to be dealing with. Yeah. I mean, my, my two and a half year old, she said, um, this past weekend, this weekend, um, she's like, you know, dad, I I love mama and I love Taylor, who is her younger brother. And I love you, dad, but I also love myself. And I was like, a two and a half year old is telling me that she loves herself. That's profound, man. I mean, it's, it's really cute too, but it's super profound for somebody to be able to say that. So yeah, I, I, I'm just blown away by some of the things that they say at this age. I can only imagine what they're going to say in you know, two, three years. There's a, I've, I've picked up on it a little bit. I don't remember what picked up on it. but uh, There's a point in your kid's life as they grow up, especially like that one to two, when they look at themselves in the mirror, when they no longer refer themselves in the third person. Because like generally, like my three-year-old, when you ask Cruz in the mirror, she'll just say Lillian, and she won't say me. And there's something mentally that they develop that they grow through and when they can internalize and say me versus the person's name. Like, I think that's where your daughter's at, that she's already starting to be able to identify herself as a person. And that point that she's saying there, like I, my, my oldest is seven and like the, the amount of drama that she deals with in second grade is crazy. So I've often just kind of focused on what you, what she already realized at two and a half of, I love myself because I mean, think of the world that girls have today. I can only imagine when she's 18, the world that she's going to have then. 
of how much just being able to love yourself as a woman, right? Be able to power her to do amazing things. And if she doesn't have that, how many issues are connected to women not loving themselves these days? Right, right. And I think if I if I remember correctly, when I listened to the podcast between you and Rich Cardona, you had mentioned something about um, how hugging a young girl, your your daughter. Um, increases the chance that she will not have what was it was it premarital sex yeah that she, it'll it'll something it'll decrease the chances by 60 percent by the age of or you can also say it by not hugging your daughter that there's a 60 percent chance by the age of 12 that she will have sex and by yeah. hugging her it reduces it uh by 60 percent by the same amount wow um that, that was mind-blowing because that mind-blowing. love that they feel from their father is so important and making sure that they have that when they go out into the world. And if they don't have it, this is why that they, you get girls that guys joke about have daddy issues, I believe, right. because they just never felt that love. And they're always seeking it from other men, which actually never come from because they're always trying to find it from their father or find a replacement from it. Right. Yeah, that's, that, that was profound, man. And I, I literally have, have started implementing my, I mean, my daughter's in a, in a phase right now where she's, completely um a mama's girl <laughs> but but you know if i if i can't hug her there's some type of you know fatherly physical contact that i'm trying to have with her like whether it's like you know just tickling or or wrestling or, or something because that's what she comes to me for she's like you want to wrestle and i'm like absolutely i want to wrestle because that's that's my hugging right now. I'm sure this is a phase that she'll get out of and she'll be comfortable hugging me again soon. But um, when, when you mentioned that on the, the podcast um, earlier, that blew my mind and I'm like, okay, then this is definitely something I have to make sure that I, I get with my daughter is that, that father daughter connection. I don't know if I mentioned the title of the book, but it was strong father, strong daughters by Meg Meeker. That book First three, the 75% of it scares you because of the role that you play and what if you don't play that role properly, the outcomes that can happen. But the last 25% was really where that kind of like uh, the awakening happened. Um, and my daughter's, th- well, my youngest is three. Uh, one of the things that I've really enjoyed this school year starting is what I call bedtime talk. So my oldest, we have real-time conversations about playground issues and people, but my youngest, who's three, we literally just lay in bed together and tell jokes and laugh. and. Uh, just have random conversations about friends at daycare and what they did to her. Cause generally she's always saying that all these boys are pushing her and all these different things. And, um, randomly through this talking about boys at daycare, uh, I always, we all, I've been coaching her for like the last year that when someone pushes you, you need to make sure you say no, thank you. Or when someone's doing something to them, they say no, thank you. And we talk about this and all of that's kind of morphed into bedtime talk, but now she's really good about when she, like, if I'm tickling her and she doesn't like it, she will clearly say no, thank you. And I can only extrapolate to that later in life when some man is doing something that she doesn't like, she's going to have these early memories of you don't, you say no, thank you. And you tell people you don't like it like that, but it all comes from bedtime talk and nice. it's just random conversations. And like I said, at three, it's, it's nonsense talk, but, um, especially for girls as fathers, we have, and as a Navy SEAL, you've experienced a lot of life that you can help coach your daughter through that, that experience or that emotion that we need to be there to help get our our daughters through all that, that we can be that bridge 
to kind of get them through the other side. And there's a saying that says, you want to be there with your kids for the little things and make sure you're always listening because then they'll be there when they need to tell you the big things. But if you're not there in the early days when it's the easy stuff, they won't come to you when it's the big stuff. Yeah. Oh, I, I can only imagine. I mean, the, the fact that you're mentioning your, your second grade uh, daughter and the, and the drama that she's experiencing that that horrifies me man the, the, the drama is <laughs> oh man it's playground stuff she'll just break yeah. down and and go tear like zero to ten over <laughs> that they couldn't play jump rope together and like some friends no longer playing with her now and that just it's easy for adults to dis- dismiss it but that emotion is as real as someone dying to an adult and for us to not help them through it or just not get reacted to it that's usually what adults usually get to it is react to it but Right. Just trying to help them through that. Like that's something that is just as real to them and we can't invalidate them because then they're just going to start suppressing these feelings. And sure. When sure. They, they need, what you learn through meditation, need to work through the emotion, not suppress it. And that's a lot of what military trains you to is to suppress the emotion instead of working through it. And that's as dads to come home, we need to learn how to process our feelings, not just suppress them. Right. And I mean, that's another, another thing that you kind of hit on is, is the, the compartmentalization that we do learn in the military. I mean, I never had somebody say, hey, you need to compartmentalize that, but it's kind of, it's unspoken, unspoken rule, right? Yeah, exactly. Unspoken. You just read between the lines. But, yeah. So, I mean, you, you don't want to, you don't want to show your emotions. You don't want to express them. And, and, um, and that's It's actually odd that there's not some Marine Corps order or Navy order that says how to process your feelings, because there is literally an order for everything. <laughs> and now right, that I think right. about it, there really isn't one that I ever read that says, here's how your emotions should feel. And yeah. which it's almost ironic because they do tell you how to do everything. And somehow about. this one emotion thing, um, maybe they should tell you how, maybe they should write an order for emotions because maybe that would help uh, stem the, the suicide rate because it would <laughs> actually put text to these things that people keep inferring about that the military never intended for it to happen. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it's I think it's something that is coming. I mean, we kind of scoff about it, but I think that um we're we're trying to implement and instill resilience in our in our troop or, you know, troops whether they're marines, whether they're sailors, airmen, whatever, um <clears throat> soldiers. We're we're trying to get it to them earlier, give them tools that give them that resilience on the front end we've been good about giving them things on the back end and, and I'm going to come full circle, you know, to this, uh, to how this deals with the family. But um, yeah, I know in the Navy and I'm quite positive in special operations, they've started implementing the, I mean, the kind of the stuff that I deal in now is mindfulness and meditation and how in, in the, in the back end kind of as a cure, we're giving it to people to help with stress, depression, anxiety, um, but down the line, we're, we're starting to give it to people to have it as a tool to deal with those things up front. And then mm-hmm. coming, like I said, coming full circle to our families, uh, this is something that we can give to to our sons and our daughters is as fathers um, or as men in general, I think we're all too often prepared to try to fix a problem and, you know, offer a solution where quite often what we need to do. And, you know, this is me speaking from my time with platoons, my time with in relationships, not so much my time with my kids. Cause again, my kids are two and a half and, and eight months old. So take this all with a grain of salt and hopefully 
as I get older, I can implement my own advice here, but um, we have to be act, active listeners rather than when they tell us, hey, here's, here's what I've got going on. I feel like I'm a loser at school rather than telling them, hey, you're not a loser. You're awesome. You, you're uh, a great kid. Rather than telling them that, ask them, okay, what is it that makes you feel that you're a loser? And, and kind of show them that you're actively listening and not just offering them a, a two-second solution so that you can go about mm-hmm. your business. Um, also right next to that is validating what they're feeling, making sure that absolutely. you're not denying them the right to feel whatever they're feeling. Right. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I like that. And uh, this is something I actually was, t- I took away from our common friend that we were talking about, Larry Yach in uh, training. I went through him of common language. So just recently I've been, we've been dealing with my oldest has been kind of really disrespectful. And I've been really trying to think on it and I'm a big problem solver in general. So I've been putting this in my processor. How can we, cause it, like you try things and she just kind of goes back to the default, almost like a teenager girl, oh, by, but she's only seven. Um, and I was reflecting on what the Navy SEALs know about. You have to have a common language across a plan. And if you're not speaking a common language, then you're not all on the same page. And I was thinking, I was like, when we think of the word respectful as adults, Every adult can extrapolate an entire experience and definition. But then I was like, what does my daughter actually think of this word? We use it all the time, but does she actually have any depth or is it just a buzzword that they have in their uh, tagline at school of being safe, respectable, kind, and I can't remember the last one. Um, But do they actually know the definition of this? Because we keep punishing her for being disrespectful, but does she actually know what that root word is? And... Uh, so at bedtime talk tonight, I went a little bit more serious and I was like, when you think of the word disrespect, or I didn't say disrespect, I was like, when you think of respectful, what do you think about? And it kind of stumped her. And was, I think I planted a seed that really where we were talking about examples of being respectful and being disrespectful and how does it make someone feel when you're being disrespected? How did you feel when someone disrespected you? Like it kind of like gift wrapped all of these random events that she's had without some clear string to connect them to. And now she has this group of things, theoretically, if this all works out, that she can label as being respectful and disrespectful. And maybe through keeping talking about it, now have a common way to represent that when you're being disrespectful, mom and dad, she has something to compare it to. And I actually was thinking like, when I've been punishing her, I don't think I've actually had a clear definition labeled out for her because as adults, we just assume a lot. And Respectful is one of those words that you often don't think that people don't know about, but the kids are learning all the time. So there's a lot they don't know about and we can easily forget about that. And I've been thinking of, I did it with kindness, but I never really thought about transitioning it with respectful because I just felt like it was something that almost like a human instinct, but I'm I'm believing it not to be, but it's what you guys already know about. And I just hadn't applied that lesson that I learned from Larry's even last year ago. (laughs) <laughs> the common languages, I mean, absolutely. I mean, um, just kind of going with the military analogy that you threw out there, you know, um, even across our services between Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps, um, and Coast Guard, we, I have to throw in Coast Guard because I know, I know some of my Coast Guard relatives and Coast Guard friends who may listen to this show later. I don't, <laughs> you know, I'm going to catch black, but anyhow, um, you know, we, we use different terms for the same thing. And um, at, with the with the kiddos, that that translates directly. I mean, 
their brains are always developing. Our brains are, you know, they're somewhat de developed. There's still some neuroplasticity in there, but it's not what it is when you're, you know, two and a half or seven years. Yeah. Old. They're a sponge when they're that age. Uh, right. They're totally a sponge and constantly learning, but they're also constantly developing. And we're, we're looking at them and we're assuming that they're fully developed, that their brains are fully developed and they're responding or reacting with different parts of the brains than we do as adults. Um, you know, my, my two and a half year old, her, her little thing that she does right now is she sasses her mom and I by, you know, telling, telling us what to do or saying no to us when we ask her to do something. And, and, uh, we, my wife and I both find ourselves guilty of, Hey, look, you're going to do this. And granted, there's definitely value in, in kind of reprimanding her. But at the same time, she doesn't understand the concepts of, you know, like, um, I'm, tr I'm trying to think of an example right now. So uh, a lollipop. Okay, this is going to seem super silly. But this, this lollipop that she wanted, it was she had finished it, and we had trashed it. And she was like, Hey, I want my lollipop. And this is like hours later. She's like, I want my lollipop. Well, like, well, you know, you don't have the lollipop anymore. It's gone. She's like, but I want it. And had a little, had a little bit of a, you know, a little, a little, sa a little seven year old in there. <laughs> two and a half, two and a half year old, man. Like, yeah. So through, through a little bit of a fit and we're, my wife and I are both like, Hey, look, don't you get it? It's gone. And then we kind of both looked at each other. She's like, and we're, and we're like, Oh, she may not actually grasp that concept. So we, we need to explain that to get in that common language that you mentioned. Because mm -hmm. uh, there, are, there are concepts that we find as so concrete and so simple and obvious, but they are far more ab abstract than, than they are, than they seem to us. Like, I mean, a, a lollipop being gone, what does that mean? That just means it's not in sight, right? To the little, to my two and a half year old, when in fact to us, it means it's been trashed and it's gone. It's like, it's not coming back. So, so we had to kind of walk her through and be like, hey, look, we put it in the trash when you were finished with it. We took the trash out. The trash has since been taken by the garbage truck. It is no longer in this house. And so, so once we kind of explained that, then she kind of understood it a lot better. But yeah, that common language, man. I, I I like that term, and I hadn't really thought about applying it to. And you were sitting on it, being a Navy yeah. SEAL too. Yeah, right. <laughs> so thanks, uh, thanks for bringing me back full circle to my own terms. <laughs> uh, it reminds me of like I think it's even like my son, who's five, still doesn't get this. There's a certain point where they recognize the past that yesterday will be a week ago, a year ago, and ten years ago to a kid. And there's a certain point in their growth where they can recognize that, reconcile that yesterday is literally yesterday. And it's a similar thing. It's almost like a test of uh, consciousness of how can they experience the perception of time. But you have to kind of explain it. And you, they just don't get that yesterday is not a week ago. That yesterday <laughs> is physically a day that existed just 24 hours in the past. If we could go back a little bit. I'm going to put sure. you on the spot a little bit. You can tell me if, if it's if it's too raw. But okay. um, when you were with your first marriage, there were some of the words that you were putting out there uh, kind of made me think that maybe you were running from an emotion. Was there a particular feeling that you were trying to avoid processing back then that you were going towards back to being on duty or being deployed? 
that maybe is something that you a dad would listening would uh be familiar with that maybe that they were feeling that same thing in something that they have in their marriage sure so um <clears throat> just a couple of things so first off I'm, I'm still active duty so i won't get into too many details of what uh you know some of my deployments held but what i will touch on as far as um the emotions that that i was trying to get back to um there was there was a slew of them um several of them just to kind of touch on them were um i had a, a deep sense of survivor guilt um being that i'd lost a lot of friends on that first deployment we my wife then and i knew both the guys and their wives and their kids uh, <clears throat> So in a in a weird way, that survivor guilt made me want to get back to the fight. Um, uh, how do I say this? In almost wanting to die in the service of my country because I had had friends who had died in the service of their country, not not for glory or anything, mm-hmm. but because I, I wanted to be there with them. Um, there was also a deep sense of uh, remorse because I was a, a very young officer at the time and um, working with fellow officers out there, we had chosen who would go on these different operations. And um, it, it almost felt like I had sent a, you know, a friend of mine off to die. Um, so in going back to deployment as fast as I could, um, I, I felt like I could almost make up for that. Mm-hmm. That there was some uh, process to make it better. Yeah, exactly. Um, whether it was, you know, revenge against my enemy, which uh, that's a, that's a terrible term. I, I mean, that's not truly what I meant, but kind of in, in a, in a, weird yeah, in an emotional way. raw way. I mean, your brain's not rational when it thinks yeah. about that kind of stuff. So Ex- exactly. Um, and then, um, and then just dealing with the rapid redeployment. So coming back from overseas, when you asked about coming home, um, you know, I, I came back with the, the bodies of a couple of my friends. So I didn't have to wait until the end of deployment, that first appointment to come home. And so we are overseas we are in a combat zone we have a really rough time and we lose a lot of guys i come back on the airplane with with those same guys and i'm going through all those emotions but you know flight from afghanistan back to the united states it's not like it was in World War II, or even in even in today's age, where you get to stop at different spots and kind of decompress or process, we got these guys, and once we had them, we flew them back to the states, and I was in the states, you know, I don't know, fifteen hours later, mm-hmm. um, and processed them, saw their families. Now I'm. Now I'm back with my wife at the time, 
and, and um, you know, this is this is like less than 24 hours after we've identified bodies, and I'm back in the states. I'm back with my wife at the time, mm-hmm. um, and we're you know, go kind of going through that whole process that you mentioned earlier, that whole coming home and reintegrating yourself into their routine. Both on both sides, because again, my wife at the time, she knew the guys, she knew the families. Did you expect to come home, or was coming home sudden? Even after this, that that was sudden because yeah. So you weren't even mentally like counting down. You were all of a sudden someone snapped their fingers and yes, they're like, hey, we need we need a couple of escorts to take these guys home because that's how bodies come home. Is they come home with an escort. Um, so I was volunteered, came home, was home way earlier than I had anticipated. Um, not only earlier but also faster because mm-hmm. there's like that decompression stop that you have on the way back from combat deployments they've implemented now sometimes they'll stop in germany for a day or so but kind of reminded me of diving something that you're probably familiar with exactly, the analogy exactly. where if you go too fast to the surface you get the nitrous bubbles and it's just absolutely you can die from it and it's the same process of traveling back to normalcy too quickly Right. And that's actually what they call it now is third location decompression is you decompress from, you know, you've been in a combat environment and now, now you're suddenly back in the States. Well, they wanted to have something in between that. So that guys, guys and girls, when I say guys, I'm sorry, that's gender neutral people could kind of adjust before getting back to the States. I mean, we were we were coming home at times we were home in less than 24 hours from when we were on the battlefield and now we're home and you know we're standing in the starbucks line yeah somebody complain about their latte that is too hot or you know doesn't have the right foam or something like what in the world kind of world am i living in so um that's those were some of the the coming back to your original question there um those were some of the the emotions that I was running from um, while I was stateside and then trying to get back to as fast as possible. Yeah. Cause you never really had a chance to end it mentally. Like your mission right. never was stamped complete. Complete. Yeah. There was no closure, no closure. So mm-hmm. It reminds me of the very first time I came home from Okinawa. And so I left in June and I came home in June and it was like a time capsule. So growing up on a farm, everything was exactly the same. The corn was the same height everything about the small town community I was like Did this year even exist because it was literally was exactly the same and it was right on the fourth of july when i came back and i went into the small town fourth of july parade it's got all the different stuff and i just remember crying profusely when the flags and the fire trucks go by because it just hit me that all of these people think they know what this is about or think they know what freedom feels like and think they know what they're doing but they really have no idea. And I hadn't even served in combat and I was having these emotions. And it just hit me that like, there's this entire disconnect of what freedom really is and then what everybody else kind of perceives it as. And then there's this view of how people perceive them um, honoring that freedom, which is fine and it's what they do and it's, it's what it is. But it's an emotional process that I still go through. I still cry every year on the 4th of July for that same reason because it is just an overwhelming feeling of the sacrifice and the the abundant happiness that people are sharing on the 4th of July, but at the same time to really represent what freedom to me kind of like uh, feels like. And it's, it's, it's hard. Um, there was a couple of questions I was going to ask you. Have you ever thought about a defining moment for you? 
Um, I have not really, but if I were to, um, a defining moment, uh, <clears throat> I think I would say, <laughs> yeah, I've got several. And, and if you don't mind, I'll kind of run through the, the three that popped into my mind when you asked that question. Um, two of them were really fast. Um, I, I caught both of my children when they were like, when they were born, born. So I was able to literally catch them, you know, there in, in the physical labor and delivery process. I was there and, and caught them both. Um, my mind was absolutely blown when my little daughter came into my life, came into this world. And I saw my life uh, change before my eyes. And then, uh, and then similarly with my, my little boy, uh, two years later, almost two years to the day later, um, those were defining moments in that I grew up in an instant. Um, I was um, almost 40 years old when my daughter was born and I still felt like a, a kid. And now, and now I've got a little girl in my hands mm -hmm. and I'm like, Oh, now, now I, you know, I've, I've experienced a lot of things. I've seen a lot of things. I've done a lot of things. Now I am a man. Um, and now I am a father. Now I'm a dad. And that was defining to me. Um, and, um, and then, you know, two years later when my little boy came into this world, same thing. Now I am the father of both a little girl and a little boy and the different experiences that we're going to have uh, together, those were defining moments to me. The, um, the third one that I can think of right now, um, my daughter, um, when she was still in the womb, she was, I, uh, they identified a, what they thought was a really large tumor in her liver. And um, six months after she was born, my wife and I, um, the, the neighbor was good enough to, to send us up to Boston Children's Hospital. And uh, the, the doctors up there were like, yeah, this is something we need to remove now. It's, you know, it's taking over the majority of her liver. It's pressing on the, uh, the ducts that are coming out of her liver and could could cause some uh, life endangering circumstances down the road. So this is, you know, my, my daughter who was, again, like I mentioned before, my pride and joy, my little uh, China doll and, or our little China doll. And, uh, and they're talking about um, major surgery. So um, we, got the device, came back two, two weeks later, and, uh, and we actually had the surgery there at Boston Children's. And they ended up um, uh, doing like a nine and a half hour surgery, cut out five-eighths of her liver, cut out her gallbladder. Uh, um, and that is by far the most scared I've ever been. Um, I've been on the battlefield. I experienced loss. Um, I've, I've experienced times where I had little to no control, but this is absolutely no control. And it is with my six month old daughter. Um, I was 
horrified. And that was a, a life defining moment for me. Um, she, I mean, the fact that we're talking right now and, and I've already mentioned her, she, she made it through the surgery. They ended up pulling the, the, uh, what ended up being a, an intestinal duplication. So basically her intestines had duplicated inside of her liver. Um, so it wasn't cancerous or anything, but they, they removed that. And, you know, she's got this massive scar all the way across her, her belly. She calls it her, her beautiful scar now. <laughs> um, th- that was, that was terrifying for me, man. And, uh, that was absolutely a defining moment in, in my life. And for a Navy SEAL that looks for absolute control, to have a plan, to have a, yeah. a process to get through it, to have mission success. And this one is completely outside of your control. You're just waiting. Right. Oh, it was completely out of, out of my control. And, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, if I, yeah, that I'm even like my, my palms are sweating right now, even, I'm sweating just listening to that story. <laughs> Reliving that that moment. Um, and, and you know, my, my wife was a complete rock through it all. Uh, just an absolute stud. Um, and then here you're the Navy SEAL losing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my little girl. So, um, yeah, uh, that was, that was, those are my three, I think, uh, defining moments. Um, uh, and they all had to do with my kids. Um, I, I will say I, I did have one more now that now that I've just said they all had to do with my kids. Um, one one other, um, my wife and I before we had kids, we went on a on a mission trip to Nepal. It was a church and a uh, and a medical mission. Um, and, and you know I, I've got very limited medical training. It's all combat related, and uh, we've got doctors, we've got uh, physicians assistants, we've got dentists out on this trip. Uh, we, we were in Nepal, in, in the mountains of Nepal, uh, and uh, the one of the dentists there, or the dentist there, he's, he's like, uh, so so, what do you do exactly? And I was like, well, yeah, I'm military. And he was like, okay, so are you here for our security or something? I'm, like, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm here to participate in the, in the mission. He's like, well, so I'm, I'm assuming you're not afraid of blood. I was like, well, no, I've got you know basic basic medical training. I can uh, I can do something. He's like, okay, well. You're going to help me to pull teeth because that's what they do. You know, it's not like you're giving fillings in the mountains of Nepal. You're, you're pulling teeth that they have rotten teeth. So that's that's what I did for two weeks was I pulled teeth. But at the same time, it was also a, a, uh, a spiritual mission, you know, sharing the gospel with the people in the mountains. And uh, my wife and I uh, got to share our spiritual stories with with people, not just uh, the other people who were on the mission, but the people there in, in the mountains. And then we we had only gotten married like two weeks prior to that. And then we had not said our official vows at our at our wedding. And we uh, we ended up saying vows that we had saved, and we said it to one another in a in a river up in the up in the Himalayas. Um, with it had to be a cold river. It was freezing, freezing. It was, it was, it was summer and it was freezing. So I got to uh, ask, was it more colder than buds? Oh yeah. Far okay. colder, far colder. And I, and, and I pride myself on going through a winter class, but yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> it was far colder than that, but we were only in it for, you know, maybe, maybe five minutes as we shared, shared our vows to one another freezing, but outside of the river, it was nice and warm. But yeah, it was, a. Uh, that I would also say is a uh, another defining moment in my life was just being completely vulnerable 
to another person about how I felt about them, um, how I felt about what they could do um, in my life um, for me. So, sorry, man, I know you asked for one and I gave you four, but. <laughs> no, man, all of that was absolutely um, beautiful to hear. And I'm, I'm sure you made a few other dads get emotional as they, as they were hearing that. The reason why I asked the question is uh, I first was given this question uh, there's a army officer named John Lee Dumas who has a podcast entrepreneur on fire now, but he gave a keynote that I re-listened to on a podcast and he was talking about his defining moment that now leads him to be a, a millionaire doing a podcast uh, that as an army officer, he was in Iraq and he lost, I think like five or six of his uh, in his command. And as he came home at, I think Dover air force base, he put his hand on their coffin and I don't think he knew what he was doing at the time, but he made a commitment that he was going to create a life worthy of the sacrifice that they gave him and that I can live and you died. And I'm going to make sure that my life always measures and equal to the sacrifice and gift you gave me. And he kept saying no to things. He kept quitting jobs and doing things bigger and going for bigger and bigger dreams because he kept measuring his life against that defining moment. And that is that defining moment that he that story really helped me enter this podcast and even almost, I would say my defining moment is where, as I was talking in the pre-interview, I joined the Marine Corps versus the Air Force because I believe that moment, that left turn there, instead of going straight and now going left, put me on a long path to where I am now. And I think of that defining moment. And when you mentioned uh, the survivor guilt, this is something that I really put together from listening to the dads in the podcast, is that dads are, and military dads and no matter where you're serving or not, that we often get hung up on the legacy that it means to serve and that we keep focusing on why I lived and he died. Like these are questions that don't have answers, but we keep asking the same question and getting frustrated with no answer coming. But yet the true legacy is our family. So if we were to switch from our legacy of our service to our legacy of our family, that's really where you can start to let go of that question and now focus on the best chance you have to make everything in life better for the next person, because you have all this experience, you have all this knowledge, you have all this wisdom that if you gift it properly and be a dad and show up in your kids' lives like you're supposed to, you can create a dent in the universe like the world's never seen. And I've, I've coined this uh, in the last couple of podcasts that like other dads died so that us dads that did get a chance to come home could be the best freaking dads that we could be. Like they gave us all a gift. And every time a dad dies in combat, they're making a sacrifice to renew that us dads who still have the chance to come home and hug our kids and they never get to hug their kids and a kid out there never gets to feel their father's love. Like that's the gift that every person that dies gives us. And even the, the um, Navy SEALs that died before you were dead, they gave you a gift that you just weren't ready to receive yet. And when you did receive it, it became your defining moment. And now that is almost like your objective to create a legacy with those two kids and hopefully three that is worthy of all the sacrifices of everybody that came before you. Yeah, that's uh, that's beautiful, man. And, and spot on. Like, um, I met with somebody, one of my counselors years back and he was talking to me about the survivor guilt and, and, and post-traumatic quote unquote disorder which, uh, you know, I, I hate that term because I think anybody that's exposed to traumatic stress that doesn't respond um, with some type of 
change mentally that they're the ones with the disorder, but uh, that's neither here nor there. But um, the, what he called it rather than PTSD was post-traumatic growth. Yeah. I've heard that said as well. Yeah. And, and how, how people who are exposed to traumatic events, whether it's, you know, on the battlefield, if it's back home and they survive a car crash or, um, you know, maybe, maybe some type of sexual trauma. Um, yes, they have that as a traumatic event, but they can grow from it and, and, uh, and, and look back and say, okay, I survived. I didn't die. Um, yes, it was horrible. And I'm not taking anything away from any type of traumatic experience, but it was horrible, but I'm alive. Why am I still alive? And, and, you know, make something of the reason you're still alive. So, you know, the legacy of, of family. Um, yes, uh, those, those friends of mine died. But if I had died, then my, my two children, potentially three or, or more down the road, they would not be here. And what can I offer them? So I love that um, the, the legacy of family um, spot on. And, and I, I definitely, uh, cherish that in, uh, in my day-to-day life with, with these little ones is that I know, um, for a fact that I, I owe those who have gone before me, those who did die, those who did actually give that ultimate sacrifice. They gave that so that I could be here with my little ones so that I could be here with my little ones, not so that I could be on my phone with my little ones, right? Going back to yeah. two and a half year old saying, Hey dad, put down your phone. That's when it, it should hit me like a freaking sledgehammer and say, look, those, those buddies of yours that I lost, they, they didn't do this so that I could freaking check Facebook or whatever. They if you believe in ghosts, you could almost say that that's someone knocking on her shoulders, knocking on yours, yeah. like, get your crap together, dude. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and that's, uh, that is a way of looking at it that I hadn't really thought of before. Um, so I'm going to start looking at it a lot harder that way so thank you for that you're welcome i could tell it was uh holding you back and uh not everybody puts it together and then one thing i by interviewing so many dads i get to piece together a puzzle that no one ever gets to see the full picture until you're the guy hearing 44 episodes of the podcast (laughs) you're the one sitting on the end processing all these emotions and trying to figure out how it's all connected the one thing that i've kind of used ptsd for and i didn't necessarily, I didn't have PTSD. So I'm always on the outside looking at this problem, but I really framed it as it's a big giant toolbox. It could be through death. It could be through violence. It could be through assault. It could be just through a traumatic event. Maybe even, even something as simple as bullying can be a creative PTSD moment that you don't, you don't want to avoid. But these are all tools in a toolbox that you just don't know when to use them yet. And really framing them into a not yet. Like I experienced something, but I don't know what to do with it yet. You really need to keep reminding yourself that because there's going to come a day that your daughter's going to ask you a question. And just like a lightning bolt struck out of the sky, something that happened 10 years ago, you're going to have a lesson to share with her. And that lesson will help her walk through it 3000 times faster than had you not experienced. And I think that's why the military dads are some of the best dads out there or with the most potential, because we have so many tools in our toolbox to create the most amazing children, ones that understand diversity, ones that understand experiences, ones that understand how to push through, 
one that understand how to be there and reach out the hand when someone needs help. These are gifts that create better human beings. And these are the things that creates dents in the universe. Right. Like Steve Jobs said, man, I, I, refer, I use that quote a lot from Steve's and I kind of reframe it to be like, if there's a universe as a wall, as a dad, your job is to, to create so that when someone walks by and, and sees a dent that it's next to your name, your last name is like someone walks by and like says that <laughs> dent was the colloids because as a dad, that's what really you can do. And I mentioned, I interviewed Navy Andy Stump and he gave this advice that was brilliant. And it kind of says what you were talking about being highly effectively trained and still you're only so capable of doing something that as a Navy SEAL, you're trained to be the most elite fighting force on the planet. But yet there's a max effective range, which is how far your rifle can travel or the bullet you can travel. Like no matter how good you are, there's still a max effective range. But as a father, you can literally go generations into the future. You can create the next three uh, generations to be better than the last three generations. Like that effective range is limitless almost, but as a Navy SEAL, you're still limited. So he taught me to know your max effective range. And as a dad, you have the best chance to go light years into the future with whatever you instill your kids. And at that toolbox, if you give your kids these well-rounded experiences and tools, you can create a human being that the world's never seen because everything we do is, is new and everything that we create can be better. And our kids are the best chance to do that with. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, you know, so true. And not just, not just in um, our everyday interactions with them, but the, the long-term things that we do indirectly, you know, how they, they see us treat others, how they see us treat our, our spouses. Um, you know, and then obviously the, the direct day-to-day interaction as well. Um, we are definitely affecting. The- We're a model for what, like as a dad, you're the example that she will go out into the world to find. Right. And you're right. either going to be in the example that you want to bring home the shotgun to, and okay. or you're going to be the, the example that you're like, this looks like a good man. Right. And that's the right. choice that you have as a dad to imprint on her. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, We've spoken a lot about, uh, you know, our, our daughters, um, my, my, uh, my brother-in-law, um, I've got several brother-in-laws. Some of them are, are not great people, uh, or one of them was previously not a great guy. Um, now he's, now he's an ex-brother-in-law, but, uh, again, that's another story, another time. But, um, one of my great brother-in-laws, he just sent me a book and funny enough, it's written by a Navy SEAL. I forget the name of the, the author, but. Um, the I think it's Raising Strong Men by Eric yes, Davis. That's it. Yeah. So I just got that in the mail today. Um, so, you know, I've got the, the eight-month-old little boy. I'm looking forward to reading this book and seeing how the lessons that I've learned in the teams uh, apply to raising good, strong uh, young man, a, a good, strong young man, and then, uh, you know, and having him be a good, strong younger brother for my daughter as well um so yeah it's uh you know both sides on the raising daughters and raising men Mm -hmm. Um, we we as as men have a lot to learn and because how you treat your wife will be how your son models and grows into his marriage right all of those things that however we show up are what they're going to use as a lens to view the world then we can either 
make sure that lens is one that we, that gives them the clearest view, or we can give them one that's maybe a foggy view and they don't understand how to be themselves even. Right. Right. And the, I, I like that book and uh, another one. Have you ever heard of Wild at Heart? Wild at Heart? Uh, no, I don't think I'm not. That's another good um, man book. And it talks about the burning desire that men have and how um, it's faith-based as well. So I think you'd really like it connecting faith and men and um, the need for adventure, which is something that, uh, he, that they talk about in that book, that men have this burning desire to be adventurous and do big things. But that's often, that's not the voice that we hear encouraging us from the outside world. And that book really helps um, expand, again, the, the view that you have to create uh, a better family. Um, another thing that comes from Andy Stump is he says that our goal, our, our mission as dads is to give our kids the widest view of the American dream. And what better people than military dads who have a very wide view of the military, our American dream to make sure that our kids can figure out how they fit into the world and not just have this one pattern that most people follow and then get lost in and then have to start over again at 35 and figure out who they are. Right, right. Yeah, funny enough, uh, I think I mentioned this to you in the in the pre-interview. Was, I know Andy by name, but now uh, the the few I think you mentioned the the max effective range in the podcast with Rich as well, and now you've mentioned some other things that Andy mentioned. Uh, I need to meet this guy, man. So, <laughs> <laughs> He's out in Montana, so you're in the completely wrong part of the country. Well, uh, my wife and I are hoping to move out to Colorado and do a, uh, when I retire, we're going to do a around the country, like six or seven months in our RV. So in Montana is absolutely one of the spots where we're going to hit Billings and, and Bozeman and, you know, head out to Wyoming and Dakota and, you know, North Dakota and all the, all the great spots up in the North when it's warm. And then uh, circle back to the South when it's uh, a little bit cooler. If you want to check him out more, he has a podcast called Cleared Hot. Cleared Hot. Okay. I'll check that out. He's on like episode 70 probably by now. Yeah. Uh, but just a lot of random stories. He's, he, he likes talking about a lot of random things. But he's, when he does get going on a topic, the first time I found him was on the Joe Rogan show. And uh, I was just like, who is this guy? And like two and a half hours into it, you mentioned that he was dead and I was like, Oh man, awesome. That way I can ask him to be on the podcast. And I, I blew my mind. Cause it was the very first episode of the Joe Rogan that I'd ever heard. And funny that was Andy that was list, listening to it or was on there. And I was like, how can you talk for three hours on a podcast? And Joe wow. does it multiple times a, a, a week, but yeah, that's where I first heard him. Um, and then it's been growing ever since. It sounds like he's a, a wise man. So he's got some good, good uh, father tips to share with the rest of us. And his kids are more seasoned. They're, I think, in high school as well. I think his youngest is yeah. a sophomore. Well, those are the ones I need to learn from because mine are still a toddler. His episode is like number maybe 25, somewhere in the early okay. number ranges. Cool. I'll check it out, man. Well, John, I've got one last question for you. What is one parting piece of advice you want to leave for military dads as we wrap up? Um, I would say really look at your priorities. Um, as I talked about, uh, I'm on my second marriage. I think my priorities were, um, I wouldn't say screwed up in my first marriage, but they were certainly not ideal for a relationship or for children. 
um, my priorities back then, um, if, you know, if I had to say what they were, I, I think they were, you know, God, um, work and then family. And uh, I still believe in, in having country as, you know, one of your top priorities. But I think as you have, uh, children really evaluate what your priorities are. And if your family is not, you know, number two or a very close number three behind country, um, then, then you need to consider what it is you're doing with a family. I mean, are you, are you doing both yourself and your family a disservice by having the priorities, um, not necessarily out of order, but not in the, not in the order that you need them to be as a, as a father, uh, as a, as a parent. So, uh, and that I, I think goes out to not just the, the men out there, but as any military, uh, parent, father or mother. So, yeah, you actually inspired some, I never really thought of it this way. I've given the advice, but never in this frame that there's only really two things that are infinite, your commitment to your wife and death that everything else will end your service, your career, your jobs, even being a dad that your kids will leave. I mean, you're never stopping a dad, but that responsibility will end at some point and they'll leave your house and they'll go off on their own. And your wife is the one of the commitments that will go all the way to death. Like that is a commitment that doesn't expire. Everything else will change except your commitment to your wife. And the only thing that's going to cancel it is death. So framing it in that way, I've never really thought of it that way, but it really focuses. And I've said this before that like your kids are going to betray you. You need to focus (laughs) on uh, your wife first, no matter how much you want to be a dad, your wife is the one that you've committed through, through everything. And you want to be the best dad you can be. But again, your kids are going to betray you. They're going to leave the house and yet your commitment to your wife is still going to be there. So you can't deprioritize it for a few, I mean, when the beginning, you're, it's kind of a hot mess. But when they're up and running and on their own, that's when you need to reprioritize back to your wife because that's the commitment that's going to get you to the end of time. And very few people frame it that way. I, I would say I'm guilty of it as well because I've never had the thought before. But um, really, that is the commitment that goes on forever. And anytime you're deprioritizing it, you're almost out of whack with the universe because... Right. Everything else that you're focusing on has a, a finite end date. It's going to be over at some point. You're never going to work at this career forever. You're never going exactly. to do any of those things forever except your marriage. Right. Right. Absolutely, man. So yeah, that's uh that is my parting piece of advice, I I guess. That's a pretty that's a pretty damn good piece of parting advice to kind of wrap. We went into a lot, a lot of different areas on this podcast. And I really appreciate you being vulnerable on this podcast, John, because I know it's not easy. I, we, we didn't have video, so I couldn't tell if you were getting teary, but it felt like you were getting a little bit teary there for a few times. So I'm not going to make you admit as a Navy SEAL that you cried, but I really appreciate uh, that because uh, I'm sure some of your friends are going to listen to this and you'll never let it down. So I won't put it on, on record, but I really appreciated you coming on and I'm really uh, looking forward to growing our friendship in the future. Hey, thanks, Ben. I, I appreciate the the uh, the uh, the ability to be vulnerable, and and thanks for kind of opening up some of the the things that were out there um, for me. And then, as far as tearing up, um, I don't know if you've seen Brene Brown's Netflix special on vulnerability and strength. I don't think I have. Yeah, Maybe I should excellent. though. 
is absolutely excellent. Um, and, and I'll probably get mocked more for the fact that I watched that, but, uh, yes, I teared up. Um, absolutely. I did. And I'm not afraid <laughs> to admit that because I'm vulnerable, but I'm strong. <laughs> so and being okay. vulnerable doesn't admit that you're not strong. It only makes you strong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and yeah, when you check out the Brene Brown special on Netflix, you'll, uh, you'll appreciate that even more. So anyway, it's been an absolute pleasure, Ben. Thanks so much for this. And, and thanks for what you're doing with, uh, with your podcast and kind of sharing the the stories that all of us have and hopefully, hopefully, making better dads in the in the process both those who are in the military uh, and those who are not you know if they can pick a pick a nugget from your podcast and make them better fathers better parents you know if, if, for, for the women out there that may be listening hey uh, i i appreciate what you're doing so keep doing it and uh keep pressing man all right i appreciate it john you enjoy the rest of your night all right thanks man take care man that's a wrap And thank you for listening to today's show, and I really hope you enjoyed it. The lifeblood of any new podcast are the reviews. If you haven't reviewed the podcast yet on iTunes, I would really appreciate it, and you will help us get the message out to even more military veteran dads. As John Maxwell says, if there is hope in the future, there is power in the present. Dads, it's time to come home.